Amen. Continuing our series in the book of Daniel, looking at the fact that God is sovereign, he's in control, he's the most high God that rules in the kingdoms of men. Tonight's going to go right along with that. So I want you to turn to three different passages because the two we're going to look at up front, we're actually going to refer to later in the message, but I want us to look at those up front and then we'll stay in the book of Daniel for the rest of the night. So turn to Daniel 8. Also turn to Zechariah 9, verse 9, and Luke 19, verse 41. Daniel 8, Zechariah 9, 9, and Luke 19, beginning at verse 41. I hope tonight will be an encouragement to each of you tonight, those of you that are watching tonight. For this reason, question, how often is God right? All the time, right? God is right all the time. Therefore, we're going to be looking at some tremendously precise, detailed prophecies that God gave to Daniel. And every last one of them, even though he gave them to Daniel hundreds of years before they actually happened, every last precise detail happened exactly as God said it would. Which is one of the reasons why, if I had to title tonight's message, it would be the proof is in the prophecy. Meaning that every time God reveals what's going to happen because he's the only one that knows what's going to happen in the future, it's 100% right all the time down to the finest detail. Therefore, the Bible clearly teaches that every prophet who says they are of God has to be right 100% of the time because they are representing God. And God is never wrong. He's always right. That's why it was so serious that God said that if you find false prophets in your midst, you are to stone them because they do not represent me, nor do they speak for me, because if someone speaks for me they're, and from me, they're going to get it right how often? All the time, because God is right all the time. All the time. That's why down through history, those who have predicted Jesus is coming back on a certain day and he doesn't come back. Sorry. False prophet. If they truly had gotten that from God, God's never wrong. God's always what? Right. All the time. Now, beginning tonight, I want to start out with Zechariah 9.9. And the reason I want to start out that way is because here the prophet Zechariah is telling the people of God how their Messiah is going to come, how he's going to come. Look at it with me. 
The prophet Zechariah says in Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout. We talked about shouting tonight to the Lord. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is legitimate and victorious, humble, and riding on a donkey, on a young donkey, the foal of a female donkey. Did Jesus ever do that? Yeah. The day he entered Jerusalem in what's called the triumphal entry, one week before he was crucified, this prophecy was fulfilled exactly as God said, how the Messiah would come. Now, tonight, later on, we're going to see that Daniel told the people of God not how the Messiah was going to come, but the exact day that he was going to come so that they would not miss it. Because God was so precise and so detailed about when the Messiah would come and how he would come, notice what Jesus now says in Luke 19, verses 41 through 44. Jesus says to the people of God, you are going to be held accountable for not knowing the day that God came to visit you. Because God gave you very precise and detailed description about how Messiah would come. And we're going to see tonight from Daniel in the 70-week prophecy exactly when Messiah would come. Notice what Jesus says. Now, when Jesus approached and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you had only known on this day, meaning they could have known, but they did not know, even you, the things that make for peace, meaning with God, but now they are hidden from your eyes. The result of not knowing what they should have known, spiritual blindness. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and surround you and close in on you from every side. They will demolish you, you and your children within your walls. 70 AD, the Roman emperor Titus came in and destroyed Jerusalem. Just like Jesus said, they will not leave within you one stone on top of another. And here's the phrase I really want you to see tonight, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. God gave you prophecy. He told you exactly the day that your Messiah would arrive in Jerusalem. He told you how he would come to you in Jerusalem, and you did not recognize the day of your visitation. Now would you turn back with me to Daniel chapter 8. We're going to cover a lot of ground tonight, but we're not going to try to get caught up in the minutia, if you will, not that it's not important, but it's not what God wants me to share with us tonight. And before I go further, let me say this. The reason why studying prophecy should not be something that satisfies our curiosity, it should be something that always encourages us and comforts us, is because, again, God is reminding us not only about telling us what's going to happen before it happens, but knows what's going to happen before it happens and knows it down to the minutest detail of how it's going to happen, that should bring great comfort to us. 
that again, all of our days yet to come are in God's hands. And he is simply, you know, fulfilling his plan uh, for this world, for our lives with each of us within this world each and every day. And we just need to trust him because he already knows what's going to happen before it happens. Even for us individually, the Bible says, not only did he know the day of our birth before we were born, he knew the day we were going to die before we were born. He knows it all from end and beginning to end. He's the Alpha and the Omega. And nothing catches God by surprise. God knows it's going to happen way before it happens, which is why then he can use people like he did in the Old Testament, like he did in the New Testament, to be able to predict precisely what's going to happen ahead of time and always get it right, because God always gets it right. So look for just a few moments here in Daniel 8. A couple things. I want you first to see the humility of Daniel. We've talked about how great this man is, and we're going to talk next week about, again, more of the great example that Daniel has laid down for us to follow as people of God. And here in the very first verse of Daniel 8, we see his humility. You can't get it so much in the English translation, but in the Hebrew, and by the way, let's not forget that now that chapter 7 is over, we now leave the Aramaic section of Daniel, and now we come back to the Hebrew section. Why? Because now everything that Daniel is going to tell us from chapter 8 through the rest of the book relates to history and Israel. You see, before it was all about what was taking place in the courts of Babylon, in the courts of the Medes and the Persians, and how it related to just the Gentile nations. Now God is bringing Israel back in and saying, now I want to show you how history is not just going to affect the Gentile nations, but how Israel my people are going to be affected by what goes on throughout history as well. So in the very first verse, it says, In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, a vision appeared to me, and then it repeats it, to me. In other words, Daniel never got over the fact that God would reveal things to him. It's like, even though he was this tremendous you know, individual for God and, and did so many wonderful things in his life for God, he never got over the fact that God would reveal things to him. It's like, to me? You're, you're going to reveal things to me? And I thought to myself, we need to have that kind of attitude. Because God is still revealing things to us through his spirit and through his word. And we should never get over the fact that you and I get to have things revealed to us by God. Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2, I has not seen nor ear heard the things that God has prepared for them that love him, but he has revealed them to us through his spirit. Wow. Don't ever get over the fact that when you read your Bible and God reveals something to you, how amazing that is, that God reveals things to us as human beings so that we can know him better and know ourselves better and know the plan and purpose of God better. And that was Daniel. Second, 
Verse 2, in this vision, I saw myself in Susa. Susa? Yeah. Remember Esther? 80 years later, guess what? Esther's going to be in that citadel. But Daniel already sees himself there, you see. The Persians have yet haven't come to power like they are in the book of Esther. Ahasuerus or Xerxes hasn't come on the scene yet, but Daniel sees himself there, located in the province of Elam. In the vision, I saw myself at the Uli Canal, and I looked up and saw a ram with two horns standing at the canal, the Medes and the Persians. Down in verse 5, he says, while I was contemplating all this, a male goat, Greece, was coming from the west over the surface of all the land without touching the ground. This goat had a conspicuous horn, Alexander the Great, between its eyes. You say, Pastor Jeff, where do you get that? Well, here's why I'm touching on this tonight. Not that I want to get caught up with the Medes and the Persians and Greece and Alexander the Great. Many times in the Bible, you'll find this especially in prophetic books like Daniel and Revelation. If you want to know what's going on and you have no clue, Keep reading. Keep reading, because I'm going to skip. Look at verse 20 and 21 of chapter 8. The ram that you saw with the two horns stands for the kings of Media and Persia, and the male goat is the king of Greece. Boom. In other words, sometimes we just got to keep reading, and God will give us the answer to the things that, like, well, who's that? What's that refer to? You know, in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, he talks about this lampstand. And then if you just keep reading, it goes, oh, that lampstand, well, that's, that stands for the church. That's the church, the, the light of the church. So just sometimes just encourage you, keep reading. Now, notice verse 8. The male goat acted even more arrogantly, but no sooner had the large horn become strong than it was broken. Alexander died at the height of his power at the age of 33. And there arose four conspicuous horns in its place. Listen, when Alexander died, his empire was not divided amongst his posterity because he really didn't have a posterity. His kingdom was divided amongst four generals, exactly as God said it would be. Verse 9, from one of them came a small horn. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. He was quite a character. In fact, people called him the maniac. Maybe the only good thing that came out of Antiochus was that he founded a city that you and I all know and recognize called Antioch. In fact, that's where Christians were called Christians first, and the book of Acts was in the city of Antioch. Notice, he grew to be very big toward the south and east and toward the beautiful land. The beautiful land refers to Israel. And he went down and he caused a lot of havoc with the people of God in Israel. He is a foreshadow of the Antichrist. Much of what Antiochus did one day in Jerusalem and Israel, the Antichrist will do to even a greater degree. And we say to ourselves, why did God allow Antiochus to prosper even with his shocking behavior, going into the temple of God, defiling it and all this, and, and ruining the people of God. Why would God allow that? I don't know all the answers to that. But I know this. 
Just as we've learned in the book of Daniel of why God raised up Babylon and why did he raise up the Medes and the Persians, one of the reasons why, because they were arms of discipline for his own people. Because his own people had rebelled against him and he was using them to draw his people back to him. God always has a thousand levels of things going on at the same time that you and I can't understand or can't see, which is why we have to trust him. Think about what he did with the Medes and the Persians and with Greece and Alexander. He set up the world so that when Jesus did come, they had access to take the gospel to the world at that time. Greece became the language of the world at that time, and it was the language that God wanted to use to write the New Testament. Why? Because there's never been a more precise language in the world than the language of Greece. God used Alexander the Great to accomplish these things. You see, even when God is allowing those that don't know him to rule and reign, God is still fulfilling his plan and purpose because God still rules in the kingdoms of men. And you and I can take comfort in that. We might not be able to see the things that God is accomplishing at that time, but later on it becomes very clear. And that's where I think one day, you know, the Bible says, Paul says to the Corinthians, we see darkly now. One day we're going to see it all unfold for us and we're going to go, oh my goodness, that's why God did what he did, you see. And that's exactly why he used all these nations. That's why he used people like Alexander the Great to cover as much of the world and conquered as he did so that the Greek language could be set in and the Greek culture could be set in actually to advance his own people and his own kingdom in just the right time. That's how great God is. And yes, God did allow Antiochus to come in and to destroy a lot of Jerusalem and the temple and all that, you find that there in verse 13 through verse 14. And Daniel said, how long is this going to go on? And he said, 2,300 evenings and mornings, verse 14. That's pretty precise, right? 2,300 days Antiochus is going to rule in Jerusalem and Israel and make a mess of things. Well, until, notice verse 14 at the end, until the sanctuary is put right again. When did that happen? History tells us on December 25th, 165 B.C. We know the exact day that this was put back into place. That means then if you go back 2,300 evenings and mornings, that September 6th, 171 B.C. was the end. And Jesus actually uses this destruction during Antiochus's reign in the book of Matthew, chapter 24, verse 15, to picture Jerusalem in the last days. He says, as it was described in the days of Daniel, so it will be also in the days of the Antichrist. Again, Antiochus simply a foreshadow of the Antichrist that is to come. Verse 15, while I, Daniel, was watching the vision, I sought to understand it. That should be encouraging 
a man as great as Daniel, a man as in touch with God as Daniel, he couldn't grasp all that he was getting. So guess what God does? What God does all the time. He recognizes it and sends somebody to help him. If God sees that we really want to know what he's revealed to us, he'll send somebody to help us. And what better helper or teacher can any of us have than the Holy Spirit of God living within us that Jesus says, he's your ultimate teacher. Yeah, I'll use other human beings as well, but the Holy Spirit will be your ultimate teacher. This is the way it is with God. God always is willing to offer help if he really sees that we want to know what he has revealed. So he heard a human voice coming from between the banks of the Oli. It called out, Gabriel, whose name means mighty one of God. Gabriel is one of the two significant angels in the Bible, along with Michael, who we'll see a little bit later on. By the way, Gabriel's name means mighty one of God. Remember the little... Uh, Phrase L, E-L, is God in Hebrew. So Gabriel and then Michael, all ending in L there. Gabriel is sort of the, the preacher angel. Remember, he's always the one coming to announce something. Michael's the warrior angel, who I believe is in charge of Israel and protecting Israel from God's perspective. Gabriel's the announcing angel, always coming to say something. So he approached the place, verse 17, where I was standing, and as he came, it felt, I felt terrified and fell flat on the ground. Why? Because it's normal for us mortals to have this kind of reaction in the presence of a supernatural being. Again, as great as Daniel was, as in touch with God as Daniel was, when the angel Gabriel appeared, boop, I'd probably be the same way. I, I won't knock Daniel, seeing one like Gabriel. Then he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision that God is giving you now pertains to the time of the end, all the way past the Medes and the Persians, all the way past Greece, all the way past the Roman Empire, to that revived Roman Empire that will be ruled by one antichrist. In fact, he says in verse 19, I'm going to inform you about what will happen in the latter time of wrath, literally God's indignation, the great tribulation, for the vision pertains to the appointed time of the end. Now, there's something else I want to come back to in chapter 8 in closing tonight, but now I want you to go over to chapter 9. Remember at the beginning, we referenced Zechariah 9, 9, how Messiah would come, and Jesus then in Luke 19 said, you're held accountable, people of God, because you were given these prophecies in your scriptures, and either you didn't study them, you didn't pay attention to them, you, you didn't grasp them, you should have known these things, and so you're held accountable. And now here in Daniel chapter 9, in what's called the 70 weeks prophecy, here's where the people of God should have known the exact day, not just how Messiah would come, but the exact day that he would come. And this is something I always enjoy sharing, because again, it just is so amazing that our God has the future in his hands. And if that be so, then you and I, folks, can trust him 
And we don't have to be afraid of our future, no matter what it is, because it's all part of God's plan. I'm going to pick it up in verse 23. At the beginning of your request, a message went out, and I have come to convey it to you, for notice this, you are of great value in God's sight. Literally, you are a precious treasure to God. Isn't that awesome? The angel Gabriel says, Daniel, you're a precious treasure in God's sight. How did he know that? Well, Gabriel spent time in the presence of God. I think as an angel, being in the presence of God, he saw how God, in a sense, reacted and responded to the things of Daniel. You're of great value to God, too. Don't forget that. You're a precious treasure. He loves you so much that he sent his son to die on the cross for you and for me. That makes us pretty special, of great value. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. In other words, the Jews could have known the time of the Messiah's arrival. Seventy weeks have been determined. Seven sevens or units of seven have been determined. I want you to look at that word determined. That's a key word. It speaks to God's sovereignty because it expresses completed action. And from God's mind, even though it hadn't happened yet, it's as good as if it already happened. He literally is going to pull 490 years out of history and say, this is my plan for that 490 years in, in relating to my people Israel. Now, first of all, only God could know that, and only God could control that to where it happens exactly as God said it would. Amazing God. Concerning, notice, verse 24, your people, Daniel, the Jews, and your holy city, Jerusalem. And then I love this, verse 24. What's the goal of God in all this? To put an end to rebellion, to bring sin to completion, to atone for iniquity, to bring in perpetual or everlasting righteousness, to seal up the prophetic vision as to the timing of its fulfillment and to anoint or consecrate a most holy place. Folks, those things haven't happened yet. I don't know whether you've noticed it or not, but we're not living in perpetual righteousness right now. Just say it, right? But notice what God is saying. I'm going to have an answer to be able to bring my people back to me. That's what the first three are all about. Israel's rebellion is one day going to be over. All Israel, Paul said, in the, Roman, in the book of Romans is going to be saved. I'm going to bring their sin to completion. I'm going to atone for their iniquity. And when I do all that, they're going to be part of my everlasting kingdom too. Oh, and they're going to have rebuilt a holy place. That's why the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem is key to prophetic events. And if you know anything about what's been going on in Jerusalem over the last 50 years or so, even since Israel became a nation in 1947, they are doing everything they can underground to be able to be in place that when certain things happen, 
It's not going to take long at all once they get permission to rebuild the temple to get that temple up and to restore worship again in Jerusalem. So now, God says through Gabriel, verse 25, know and understand God wants you to get something so that you can pass it on to others. From the issuing of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, when was that? Book of Nehemiah, chapter 2, verse 1 and following. What was the date? March 14th, 445 B.C. Until an anointed one, Messiah, a prince, arrives. 483 years. You see, later on, he says, there will be a period of seven weeks. That's 49 years. It took that long to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple from the issuing of the decree in Nehemiah chapter 2. And then you add 62 weeks of years, that's 434. That comes up to 483 years from the issuing of the command, verse 25, until the anointed Messiah arrives in Jerusalem. And do you know that there have been a few who have done calculations on this and the exact day when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, fits perfectly 483 years later from the issuing of the decree. Amazing. Not only did they know from Zechariah how Messiah would enter Jerusalem, humbly, on a donkey, he didn't come to overthrow the Roman Empire the first time. He came to die for sin the first time. But the next time he comes, he comes in power and great glory to set up his kingdom. That's how amazing our God is. In verse 26, after the 62 weeks, and then you add the 49 years, 40, 483, Messiah will be cut off, killed or destroyed, and notice, have nothing. The Messiah? The Son of God have nothing? What's that mean? It means Jesus did not receive the honor due him at his first coming, but he sure will at his second coming. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But he had nothing. He had nothing to show for it in a sense the first time. But that's the first time. And then as for the city and the sanctuary, the people of the coming prince will destroy them. Titus anticipates Antichrist. And in 70 AD, just as Jesus predicted even in the Gospels, just as Daniel predicted here, the Roman legions marched into Jerusalem and laid waste to Jerusalem and to the temple Wailing wall, just a few blocks left. That's it. But notice, his end will come speedily like a flood. Until the end of the war that has been, notice, decreed. The word decreed is also a key word like determined. It means that which cannot be changed or altered. It's very interesting because remember a couple weeks ago we talked about the laws of the Medes and the Persians could not be changed or altered Whenever Darius 
made that foolish law and Daniel ended up in the lion's den and he felt so foolish about it because the law couldn't be changed once. Here, God is saying, oh, no, no. When I say something's going to happen, it's going to happen. You can, as we say, take it to the bank. And again, that should be so encouraging for us. Listen, God hasn't told us every detail about what's going to happen, but God has given us so much that we should always be hopeful and encouraged and comforted because our future and this world is all in the hands of our almighty God, and he has a plan for his people and for this world. And it's going to be carried out in every detail, precise, just as God said it would. Now, we could go on. We'll come back to this next week. But he talks in verse 27 about this coming prince confirming a covenant with many for one week or seven years. That's the Antichrist making an agreement with the nation of Israel, which he will break halfway through the tribulation, three and a half years in. I personally think that part of that is going to be he's the one that's going to give them the okay to reinstitute the sacrificial system, which is exactly what it says here. He will bring sacrifices and offerings to a halt. I think that's because he allowed it to begin to begin with. On the wing of abominations will come one who destroys until, again, notice the word decreed, until the decreed end is poured out on the one who destroys. Cannot be altered, cannot be changed. God has already determined this is how it's going to go. A couple of things in wrapping this up tonight. The Jews, the people of God, were held accountable by God for the things that they should have known and could have known but did not know. We need to ask ourselves, as the people of God today, the church, what are the things that we should know and could know that we don't maybe know? You see, we need to make sure that we know the things that God wants us to know so that we don't miss what God is doing just as the people of God did in Jesus' day. But second, again, prophecy is not given to us simply to satisfy our curiosity. As I've said many times before, in my 36, 37 years now of being a pastor, there are many people that can tell me better than I can even recite all the different beasts in the book of Revelation. Good for them, and they act like it too. The Bible was not given to us primarily for information. The Bible was given to us for transformation. If God's word is not making a difference in my life, in my worship, in my love for God, in my love for others, then I'm missing something. Because I can fill my head with all kinds of facts. But what about my heart? Which is why, again, 
We need to make sure that as we approach God in our daily life, that we are giving him our head to fill with knowledge and wisdom, but we're also giving him our heart as well. It's got to be both. And we see the response of Daniel with all this correctly, so I, I want to use him in closing tonight as another example for us. Because many times, you know, prophecy just sort of like almost puts Christians sometimes in a spiritual stupor, and they just sort of get so caught up with just knowing prophecy that they forget that God still has them here for a plan and a purpose and a role and a responsibility. So I love what it says at the end of chapter 8, if you'll go back there for a moment. Look at the very last verse of chapter 8 of Daniel. First of all, notice the impact of the vision on Daniel was dramatic. Daniel says, I was exhausted and sick for days after absorbing God's revelation. Listen, folks, when you and I engage with God in his word and prayer and worship and stuff, it can be exhausting and overwhelming. That's okay. That's just saying we're, we're giving it our all. That's why, can I tell you, I was so encouraged Sunday night with our night of worship because just like Wednesday night, you guys impressed me. Nicole and I have talked about this. You know, Sunday morning's a little bit different. Everybody gets up Sunday morning. You haven't worked all day. You haven't spent yourself all day. So everybody's pretty fresh on Sunday morning. So I get, you know, we should at least be very energetic and all of that on Sunday morning. But Sunday night, after putting in an all-day Sunday, and Wednesday night, after many of you have worked all day and dealt with different things, to be able to come here and have the energy and the engagement that you do, that's inspiring. But that's the way it should be. God gave us his all. We need to give our all back to him. But listen, don't, don't make any mistake. When you and I engage with God at a certain level, we'll be tired. There, there are days where I might not even have any appointments or meetings, and all I do all day is study. And I got to tell you, I go home, and I'm done. I'm like, don't talk to me. Don't do it. Don't do it. I'm just done. I, did, I have nothing left to be able to. But that's okay. There's times where that's okay. That was Daniel. But then notice. Then I got up and again, look, carried out the king's business. Now, obviously, in the immediate context, he's talking about King Belshazzar that he was serving under. But we also know that Daniel was a servant of the king of kings, just as we are. And so notice, he didn't just sit around and just sort of, you know, cross his legs in the lotus position and, and you know, float off to some mountain somewhere and just hum. He got busy. Why? Because God still had stuff for Daniel to do, practical stuff, everyday stuff. Daniel still had a role and a responsibility and all of that to carry out, and you and I need to take that to heart as well. It's great to learn these things from the Word of God, and we need to apply certain things to our life, but at the end of it all, don't get caught up on the information for information's sake. You and I still have to carry out the king's business every day. There's still things he wants us to do and to be engaged in, you see. 
And so Daniel, once again, is a great standard of spiritual excellence for us tonight. But don't leave here tonight without just having your opinion and estimation of God go up just a little bit when we are reminded about these prophecies from Zechariah and from Daniel. How our God knows what's going to happen before it happens, and he knows every detail about what's going to happen before it happens. And he wants to use these predictive prophecies to not only inform his people, but to comfort and reassure us and encourage us that he's got the world and he's got the history of the universe and he's got us in his very capable hands. And we do not need to fear. We see the face of our captain. Let's pray. God, we thank you tonight for these tremendous sweeping prophecies from history. Because, Lord, we again are reminded that history truly is your story that you are writing. That even in this broken world, God, you have a plan to redeem people, to reconcile them back to yourself, to call people into a personal relationship with you, to build your kingdom, first of all, in our hearts, and one day, literally on this earth. God, may we be encouraged tonight by our experience of being here in your house, with you, God, with your people, worshiping you, God, from our hearts and our heads, and then getting into your word and allowing the Spirit of God to speak and teach us, God. May we leave here tonight, God, not just with more information, but with transformation. And God, may we go forth spreading your gospel and your message and your hope and your comfort to those that you bring us in contact with. God, they need to know that they don't need to be filled, Lord, with anxiety every day that they live. They don't need to be filled with fear every day that they live. They don't need to be hopeless for one day on this earth, God, when they know you, the God who has everything in your hands, including us. So, God, encourage your people tonight. Strengthen your people tonight. Take us home tonight safely, God, and allow us to get good rest tonight, God, so that if you give us another day on this earth, we can carry out our king's business again tomorrow. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless. Thanks for being here tonight.